From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. Welcome to the Theology on Mission podcast. This is one of your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw, sitting here alone without Dave Fitch. We're actually posting a previously recorded breakout session from the Young, Restless, and Always Reforming Conference that Dave and I were at, uh, hosted by Missio Alliance. And the breakout session was called The Reformed Tradition and the Christendom Legacy. In that, uh, I was, I truly was your host. The presenters were our very own David Fitch and Charisby Nordling from Northern Seminary, along with Ruth Padilla Deverest, Carl Ellis, and Jin Kim. They were talking about the legacy of Christendom and the Reformed tradition. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We always uh, appreciate your reviews and subscriptions, so please do that on iTunes. Thank you so much. Hey, my name is Jeff Holstad. Dave and I... Uh, co-host a podcast uh, called Theology on Mission through Northern Seminary in partnership with Missy Alliance. Um, and uh, so we kind of want to reflect a little bit on what uh, Dave just kind of threw out there. Uh, when we talk about Theology on Mission, uh, we really want to integrate our uh, thoughts and our action. And I know the Reformation tried to do that. Um, but I, you guys are all so nice. And, like, this group is also nice. So can I just throw out, like, a really provocative question? This is continuing on uh, what Dave just presented uh, to us, which is, given all that you all have said, and especially what Dave just said here, in the North American context, is there a future for Reformed theology in America? Is there a future for it here? And what would, what would it look like? <laughs> well, I think uh, uh, David Fitch framed it well. If it continues to be captive to Christendom, which is uh, empire mixed with the uh, Christian church, then no, I don't think so. Um, but if it can move into... Um, I, 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 when I say post-Western, I don't mean like non-Western. I mean post-Western hegemony. Uh, because there are wonderful gifts in the Western tradition. Uh, it just needs to stop being hegemonic and try to universalize the thing for everybody in the whole world. So if there's a, uh, a humbler uh, approach to the Reformed tradition, if, if it can be re-traditioned um, to make it a, a particular uh, theological approach as a gift to the broader conversation, then yes, I do think there's a future. So my, hus- my husband um, grew up in the heart of the Reformed tradition. Christian Reformed Church of North America, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Cal- um, Christian School, Calvin College, the whole bit. His phrase is, the good thing about Christianity is that you can grow up in one denomination and recover in another. <laughs> So since his time in the Christian Reformed Church, he's been through Episcopal and, um, uh, yeah, a kind of renewal Episcopal Church and 
um, different experiences of house churches and liberation theology-based communities in Central America. And today he's a Christian Reform World Missions missionary. Um, but to me, what's been a significant contribution, looking at it from outside, looking at it from the South, um, is the fact that um, with that kind of caveat of the complementary nature of all our different traditions, so I identify as an Anabaptist Reformed, or a Reformed Anabaptist, or a constantly converting Christian, but um, one of the things that's been a contribution in our context of a reform perspective through the missionaries of this tradition in Latin America has been precisely your first point about the breadth and the value of culture and God um, calling us into vocation in all spheres of life and that it's not more prestigious necessarily, at least this is the idea, to be a minister in a church or to be an artist um, painting street art. Um, and so that breadth in a context of Latin America where the Roman Catholic Church has traditionally um, been very, very clerical, um, very much hi very hierarchical, and very um, reduced in its, in its um, understanding of the value of culture. That's been a significant contribution um, that tempered by a more Anabaptist position in relation to power, I think could, does have a future, at least in our context. Uh, I would, I think it is a great question that of course doesn't have the answer, right? But I think back to about 20 years ago, um, one of the first classes I ever took at Regent College, I remember Jeremy Begbie encouraging us uh, professor who had come in from Cambridge to say, look, really what God is encouraging us to do as the church across the world is roots down, walls down. So that there's a beauty in the particularity of what God has given in different times and places because if it's really of the Lord, it started from him, right? And it has something that manifests his character and his grace in time and space. But the walls down piece says that I, my posture is never a fortress. It's never defending this and trying to make sure that nothing ever um, yeah, breaks that up down. So when I think of my parents coming to visit me in the um, church that I was telling you about earlier, in our Presbyterian church south of San Francisco, they would laughingly say, we can't wait to come to church at your Presbycostal church. And... I felt like this was the Jeremy Begbie moment, right, where there was something wonderful about the fact that I was receiving so much, um, very much um, indirectly, really, by the liturgical life of the church and the, the ways that I was just being formed, even by how I was hearing people pray, um, that, that I was growing into, and it probably have got me into this seat today in some ways, and yet, because of their wide openness to the things that God was doing across the spectrum, you know, we could haul a group of 10 people down to John Wimber's class at the Vineyard and learn some things about how to pray for people. And then we could haul some people, like, up to the Catholic community in, in San Francisco and talk to them about practices of spiritual formation and what does it mean to be a people in that way. So I just, I think that 
if we are willing to be reformed, in a small r, <laughs> then there's hope and there's beauty there. But as a systematic theologian who's the least systematic person I've ever known, and so most of my systematicians will never admit that I'm one of them, which is fine with me, um, I think that, as I tell my students every year, what happens, and particularly within the Reformed tradition, as I have experienced it, is that as we do theology, which belongs to the church, not to the academy, as we do theology and we hear how we fight about it in the church and the academy, uh, 95% of what we hold together, we hold together. Our roots are very intertangled and beautifully mixed up together. But the 5% that we have as branches that are unique, we spend about 95% of our time fighting about the 5% and fortressing and walling and building identification. And if we keep doing that, we become irrelevant to one another let alone to a world whether there's a good reformed thing to give. And, and I'll just add on to that last point. I, I like that last point. Uh, I've been trying to tell my own denomination, I think it's true for all denominations, that we're at a point where we need to move off of being denominations and move back into being mission organizations, which means we've got to be less uh, excessively focused on our distinctives, which were born out of certain cultural factors at certain points for certain reasons, and now we need to learn how to work together and work off of each other's strengths. I think the Reformed Church has a lot to give. So do, it. So do many other denominations. I think we can work together. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, uh, yeah. I would say that uh, similar. Um, if the if Reformed, if the Reformed uh, theology could, allows itself to be culture bound, then there is no future. I think the future is in. It's springing up in indigenous movements within different cultures. Uh, I happen to know that uh, I'm just really surprised to see uh, how many uh, African Americans are embracing the Reformed theology. And it's not because they're so much falling in love with the package that it came in, but they're seeing some of the implications, even though, though they're on only you know, the Reformed uh, reform theology, the way it has been handed down to us is inadequate, uh, yet there are some implications in it as it's been handed down to us that are obvious. And so the future is not in, in us continuing to, to relate to theology as something we only study, but it's got to be something that we do. We must be involved in doing theology of the same caliber or greater caliber than uh, Calvin and all those guys uh, did it because there's a whole lot of because as time passes more and more things are happening in the culture that fall outside of the range of let's say the Westminster Confession of Faith or something like that you know yeah right so so we're going to have to continue to do theology and the, 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 you know I know in, in African American circles we're trying to do this we're trying to do this in a, in, a, in an indigenous context. The disadvantage that we have is that we're trying to do it before the watching world. I would give my eye teeth to go back to the Westminster uh, Assembly and pick up all the amendments and statements that were rejected because you'd probably find some wild stuff in there, you know. And uh, but all of us who are trying to do theology that way, we're, we're doing it. You know, they did it behind closed doors in the chapter room, right? But we. Uh, but we're doing it out in the open. And so it's going to be some, 
some craziness in there. Some people are going to propose some things that are not going to be so hot. But we're wrestling with these new cultural phenomena. But we're going to have to, and we're going to have to do some. And if, and if we and, and if we are able to do that, then the future's bright because we do have some uh, very unique contributions to make. But that's not to say that we 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 will never cover 360 degrees of the circle. There's always, you know, there will be other movements that will show us things that we didn't know. So, yeah, there's a future if we don't allow ourselves to be culture-bound. Excellent. Thank you for those. Um, as we say, when we want to focus on theology and mission, Dave and I talk about how sometimes theology without mission uh, could maybe be thought of as just daydreaming. But mission without theology can end up being like a sleepwalking where you, you don't know exactly where you're going. But, you know, as Paul tells us, it's time to wake up. Um, for salvation is near. Now, the Reformation, speaking of salvation, was really focused, in a sense, on trying to figure out, well, what is salvation and how is it accomplished? Um, and that kind of, in a sense, none of your talk so far has actually, like, addressed, like, well, what is salvation that triggered the Reformation? But I kind of want to throw out to you, in our cultural context, what is it, like, how is salvation being worked out now? If we could kind of get back to those fundamental questions that I think started the Reformation, what is salvation now? Um, and what is God calling us to how to participate in it? Salvation is one of those things that we really don't know what it is. It's like love. There's no definition of love to be found anywhere. Uh, there are descriptions of love, yes. There are descriptions of salvation. I mean, you know, the only the Bible gives us these salvific paradigms. There's a whole lot of them. Born again, rescued, saved, uh, uh, circumcised, you know, all, all kinds of, uh, you know, all kinds of paradigms. Uh, but it's descriptive, and I think that's one of the things we're going to have to learn if we're going to do theology, if we're going to get into this. We have to recognize that salvation is something that God, you know, salvation is of the Lord, and His ways are, are greater than ours, and uh, our His His ways are not our ways, you know, et cetera. So His thoughts are not our thoughts, and. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that we have that we don't really know what they are, but we we have descriptions of what they are. And I think we're going to have to describe what salvation is in terms of paradigms of today. There's, a, there's even in life, outside of the Bible, there are plenty of things that we can use uh, as paradigms of salvation. Um, those, you know, it, it's, uh, and so that's, so we don't know what it is, but we know, we know some descriptions. And I think that's, the, that's the mystery piece. I heard someone earlier say that we, we don't have much of a, a tolerance for mystery. I, I think, uh, when we are dealing with eternity meeting time, we're going to have mystery. It's just like, um, predestination and freedom. That's just one of those things, you know, we can kind of describe it, but, but we don't. We don't know what it is in essence. So uh, what is salvation? I mean, we know some things about it, uh, but it needs, we need to be able to demonstrate it and manifest it in ways that people will understand and say, there is something that I want. You know? and, uh, and I think uh, we, we shouldn't be preoccupied in really trying to nail it down in terms of definition. Well, and the people that I minister to, um, what people are wanting salvation from is endless dehumanization. 
Um, and I, as I referenced earlier, we live in a society that uh, promotes a productive member of society idea. And that means being part of the production consumption cycle, endlessly producing, endlessly consuming, and keeping economic growth going, uh, no matter what the cost in uh, exploitation of other people groups, uh, the, the, the earth, the degradation of our, uh, the quality of our relationships. And people are recognizing that they're just one software upgrade from obsolescence. They're not only competing with uh, other workers in America, they're competing with low-cost workers who are doing more and more sophisticated jobs in other parts of the world, and ultimately against uh, software upgrades and robots. So if we see ourselves primarily as productive members of society, and we recognize that computers are becoming more productive than we can be, then what does it mean to be a human being? What is my worth as a human being? Um, the, the um, who was it? The uh, Danish Kierkegaard. Yeah, he did this uh, thought experiment where where he said, you know, if I didn't have the have certain abilities, um, with if I if I lost some abilities to speak or to walk or to or to or to use my hands, would I still be uh, worth? anything to God? And the answer was yes for him. And through that lens, he critiqued the society that he was a part of. And what, the way that we treat the elderly in our society, the disabled, um, all kinds of uh, people, people with a strong accent, you know, new immigrants, um, children, shows the dehumanization that our society has gone through and that the church has not really had an adequate response to this endless uh, march of dehumanization, but has been uh, at best a coping mechanism for people who face dehumanization, but not a radical, uh, uh, giving people a radical alternative to identity in the face of this dehumanization. And so even those of us in the business of the church as clergy or pastors or uh, organizers or, or, or whatever, even we see ourselves through the lens of productivity and are constantly failing at it. So what uh, salvation are we experiencing, uh, much less providing for those people that we are called to lead? So I think uh, salvation is a very, very important concept, but this post-resurrection uh, cosmic Christ is quite distant, whereas the Jesus of Nazareth was actually addressing the dehumanization that people were going through in his time. And so if we were to, uh, uh, you know, uh, look afresh at a Jesusology rather than a Christology, um, not a God, you know, high on a cosmic perch um, with that kind of sovereignty, um, but God come as a lowly human being offering humanity in the face of dehumanization, I think, that might be something. I'm, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, we have uh, someone who claims to be Reformed who's endlessly talking about the supremacy of God. Um, I mean, like, that, you know... Uh, uh, the, the <laughs> in a country that has the greatest military power in the world, 
um, one of the most oppressive empires the world has ever known, and to talk about the supremacy of God in that kind of, I, I mean, it's just like a, an ahistorical language, basically, right? Of course I believe that God is supreme. But to use that kind of language in the world that we live in just shows to what degree theology can be divorced from actual uh, history and the life that uh, people live in. So I guess I would just land some of the things that have been said to go back to the assumption of the first churches, which is that and Paul's language is always it's just salvation in Christ. Right? He's not even talking about salvation on the cross. For him, it's salvation in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who he was pretty sure was just a man, right? And killing people precisely for that reason. But that this one is, in fact, Lord and Christ, but also has his mom's DNA, right? And that's a profoundly crazy thing. Like, we read Paul and just go, oh, of course he's got this high Christology. Well, I'm sorry, but he was, like, slaughtering people because to ever have Yahweh's name attached to that man is really good reason for slaughter from his point of view. If you really hold a truly messianic view. And so for him to be the one who, that trips off his tongue because he's become the apostle of this one, that's pretty radical. And that salvation lands in him. And for him, it's always, it's not about getting saved from only. So all those metaphors that you just mentioned, Carl, are just it's always in contrast to whatever he's talking about in relation to sin. So if sin is bondage, then it's redemption. If sin is broken relationships and alienation, then it's reconciliation. It's, you know, he's gathering up the whole story, but it's never, well, now I'm just going to start sounding like Gordon Fee and start preaching, but growing, growing up in my home, I was like from a child, like, it is, God is not about the business of saving individuals for heaven. My dad pounded that into my head from when I was six years old. God is not saving individual souls for heaven. God is saving a people for his name, for a new creation. So he, the difference in terms of continuity and discontinuity in this new covenant is that we do get in one at a time, that he goes and finds the one lamb, but he brings the lamb home to 99 for their life and safety instead of setting up little dyads so they can have a personal relationship with their shepherd. And, you know, praise God for the 19th and 20th century, we all get our own little Bibles so we can do that, which, you know, 95% of human history couldn't have done that in relation to God. But the, the privatization of salvation is just ridiculous the personal reality of salvation is profound and permanent but it's to restore us to be truly human which jesus has finally saved us into through his entire life not just the cross and it's his entire career and he's still human standing in our place so that we can advocate for the humanity and start being men and women who get up in the morning as men and women in relation to men and women all across that spectrum of what it looks like to be broken men and women in the world. But that is the only salvation there is, which is to be saved from the things that keep us from being human, to be saved for becoming a people together, a humanity in relation one to another with God, that the world goes, oh, could I get in on that? Is that what we're doing? And go, yeah, and guess what? It's permanent when he comes back. And he does it. I love the language from 1 Corinthians 15 where he says when everything is finished, Jesus is not sitting up here next to the Father going, isn't it awesome what we pulled off? And by the way, the Spirit's somewhere here. 
It says, he is like standing down with all of us going, Father, here I am with the ones that you've given me. Like he's never taking off the incarnation, like so done with that suit now. But it's permanent. And now that he's become one with us, he's, he's postured there with us. I go, that's a salvific story. And I want to be in on what he's doing as Savior, Lord, true human, divine one. So sorry I got preaching. Hey, are you going to jump in, Dave? Are you saved? <clears throat> <laughs> that's right. Dave's the only one up here who wonders if he's saved. You know, He's still working it out. Uh, I'm going to condense it down to a couple of thoughts. One, I think the gospel now is Jesus is Lord, uh, and he's also your Savior. Uh, two, we're getting saved every Sunday. The gospel is so big, it's always contextual. It's so huge that it's being proclaimed every day, every Sunday morning, every place in our neighborhoods, in, with new entry points. And I tell my congregation I'm getting saved every Sunday. So that's it. What about Monday through Saturday? <laughs> Did you want to say something? Nope. <laughs> well, okay. So uh, I think we have time for one more question. Um, now, da- you know, I-, I could throw Dave and I are friends. I could throw him under the bus a little bit. So he oftentimes talks about the Reformation as if it's just the theology books that were produced out of the Reformation. Uh, but the truth is, is it it kicked off a whole social and cultural revolution, primarily. Uh, and the books, you know, came later. And so, and I think we still live within the effects of those of that revolution. But if we then are still to kind of live within and continue the Reformation, what kind of social and cultural revolutions are the church, could the church be participating in now? Like what are the power and the different cultural contexts that need that salvation that was just discussed? You want to start off? I'd I'd like to just continue off where where you left off, um, Jen, because I, I think the, the type of, of revolution that's needed um, is one that is, uh, it is regaining a vision of God's lordship from the bottom up. And that has to do then with this somehow ending the cycle of individual, individualistic uh, climbing by crushing as many as are under, and no awareness for the care of creation. The reality of, I think, some of the younger people here especially, and at least my, my children, young 20-year-olds and up to 30-something, are probably the most prophetic voices in terms of the need for our awareness of something that I remember reading about when I was in grade school, and that was just a, a, more than a couple years ago. Um, reading in the Britannica Encyclopedia about the, the um, I, what's the word in English? The, the, the views about the future, the ex- no, 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 not, not theological. This is science, ecology, the oh, prognostication? Prognostication, I should have just used the Spanish, I would have been fine. <laughs> Um, So the expectations about the impact of human imprint on the planet back in the 70s and thinking, 
if this is in the encyclopedia, what is anybody doing about it? If they already, it already made it into the books, somebody knows this. And I look back, and that was more than a couple years ago. And, and so when I think about the place of the church in relation to creation, call it mandate, call it stewardship, call it awareness of the fact that we are just one part of creation. We are part of the creation community. And we then have to really engage responsibly with it. And the church is way behind on that front. Um, one thought I have about that is um, I think there's such a thing as ecclesiastical soteriology. Uh, it's not named that, but there's endless uh, uh, worry and concern about sa saving the church, right? And um, it should be its own theological discipline, really, because that's all people talk about. I'm part of the PCUSA. Our average age is something like 65, um, and we are losing 100,000 members a year. Um, and as of 2014, we had 1.5 million members. So in 16 years, we're going to have minus 100,000 members. <laughs> and we will continue to grow negatively from that point. So that's really exciting to finally grow, you know, minus 100,000, minus 200,000. Uh, I'm good at math, if you haven't noticed. So that's one concern of the church and how churches, churches can be saved. I mean, I, really, that's the, that's the concern of those of us who, are, who draw our salaries one way or the other from the church. But I don't think anybody cares about that, except us. Nobody else cares about salvation of the church. We are facing catastrophic climate change. Um, our children and grandchildren are facing an, an earth where they might not be able to see the sun clearly, um, where grass may not be green, I mean, uh, where fish don't grow anymore in the oceans. And the super rich think that they can keep building chalets on higher and higher points of the mountain while the sea rises. They are idiots. But that's what they think. And some of us need to get together and try to uh, restore balance to the earth. Now, when we think of the sovereignty of God in uh, as a function of empire, then controlling the earth, exploiting the earth, even if that means endless pollution and degradation of the earth, is part of the sovereignty of God. If we think that we're God's foot soldiers on earth to conquer creation and other people, people groups. But if we understand uh, the sovereignty of God as God of creation, then we are, those of us who are part of the Reformed tradition are, I think, some of the best equipped people theologically to lead the charge and provide really meaningful and urgent and relevant theological resources to people who want to think about uh, the earth from a theological perspective. So unfortunately, as I said, I'm from a place where the doctrine of the sovereignty of God has been reduced to empire, which is why we can come up with an outra outrageous uh, phrase like the supremacy of God in this, in this day and age. But if we go back to the theology of creation, then the sovereignty of God over all creation can be one of the most helpful and powerful frameworks for uh, being part of the restoration of the earth in, uh, in, in a time when mega corporations and billionaires are actively destroying it for short-term profit.
So I think it's a very exciting time that we live in. I would want to say just yes, thank you, and yes, thank you. Um, and I think to land that, um, again, as a non-negotiable, <laughs> climate change is not a negotiable discussion because it's, it's creation care. And from my point of view, um, when I read Paul, who's gathering up the first creation narrative and the Ezekiel creation narrative and doing this in Romans to this letter to a church that he hasn't even met, but he assumes they're all in the same story. And he can retell that story in what we think of as Romans 8 and say, when we finally start becoming human image-bearing children who are born of the Spirit and function and live as children of God and co-heirs of the incarnate Christ who wears creation permanently in the triune life, how do you get God to be more for you than to have become like you and stayed that way forever? You need a value over creation. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And that all of creation is waiting and hanging on by its fingernails, literally for what? For the glory of the children of God to be revealed. For them to finally get their humanity back. Because when their resurrection happens, everything gets its life back. Which through no fault of its own has been subject to the brokenness of the image bearer. Now, when I see that God cares enough to go, oh, and by the way, in Ezekiel 36, land, let me talk to you first. Because there's no one on your hills, and you're not flourishing. Because why? Because the image bearer is broken and forgotten who they are. And they are going into exile, and you will be desolate again. But let me speak to you first, before I even show Ezekiel a vision of what resurrection looks like. That the image bearers are coming, so hold on, hold on. That is that is embedded in the body of Christ, and it's embedded in the created order. So this is a, not a negotiable topic that we let a political system tell us to think about one way or the other. So out of all of that, to say, again, if this is a, a created order idea, then it was shameful when I lived in England and, and on the Inside of Time magazine's cover. Here I am having Henry Kissinger and 200 other signatures of people apologizing to the rest of the world that the United States, which is responsible for 25% of the emissions of the world at the time, and it's probably changed a bit because of China in a decade or a decade and a half. But we didn't even go to that discussion because somehow they all, they're all going up into the ozone just right above America and we don't care, right? We don't care that we can't wear clothes for our grandchildren that are protective for them. So all of this just becomes these weird moments where you're like, how can we live out of a story in a story, like the, with that weird bifurcation that we do? And the, and the global permanent cosmic peace that just is as real as it is as to whether children are drinking good water in Chicago or Africa, as well as whether there is water levels that are proper to human and created life, are questions like um, race, or the things that Ruth just spent this morning saying, these are non-negotiables. We don't get to possibly think about them. They're, they are the realities that belong to us. And when we start framing, for instance, anti-racism conversations, still are so troubling to me, coming back to the US, because it's, we're still locked into a national conversation about what does it mean to finally become human, and guess what? It's about get access to stuff. Equal access to 
and equal privilege, equal entitlement. And that is still located nationalistically, and so it's always still going to be on the back of the rest of the world. So we might have equal access, but nobody else. And I go, until our discourse is disrupted as the church, that gets out of the framing of even the way we ask the question you asked, Jeff, which just immediately, contextually, we're in our American skin. We need um, salvation. And the way to be saved as a people for God's name in that way is to actually be able to hear the voices of the world that does not live where we live and suffers the consequences of who and what we are in the world and to actually be able to hear them as the voice of God. And I don't think we're practiced at doing that. Amen. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of our time. Can we all uh, thank you, our presenters today?